Well, good morning, church. Man, Merry Christmas to you. Can you believe Santa Claus is coming to town this week? And you know what that means, right? He's making a list, and he's checking it twice, and he's going to find out who's what? All right, confession time. Which list is your name going to be on this year? Any naughty, naughty? Okay. Boy, I saw a naughty list this week. I don't know if you've been to the Springfield Public Library lately, but I went there and they have on a board there, they have uh, listed accounts there that are overdue fines. And the accounts have been suspended. You can't check out books anymore. And I looked at the list and I started looking at some of the dollar amounts. My goodness, $20, $30, $40, several hundred dollars on one account. That is a pretty naughty list, a very public list. Maybe you're on that list, actually, now that I think about it. But you know the Christmas tradition, right? Good boys and girls get good gifts. Naughty boys and girls get shamed, and the traditional gift of shame for Christmas is a lump of coal in your stocking, right? Well, that coal legend is rooted in some old traditions, but there are a number of other cultures that have taken this in a whole lot of different ways, this idea of gifts and coal and some of this. Uh, For example, uh, in Italy, near Epiphany in early January, uh, children are visited by a witch called Labafana who flies around on a broom and will come in through the chimney or maybe a keyhole and bring good little children, good gifts, and will leave lumps of coal for bad kids. That's in Italy. But it gets darker. In France and Belgium, uh, old St. Nick has a traveling companion, someone by the name of Père Fouettar, a name which translates to the whipping father. Legend has it back, all the way back to the 12th century that uh, Paravatar was uh, an innkeeper. He would lure school children into his inn. He would drug them, murder them, and cut them up into his stew. So Santa Claus came along and resurrected those children and yet travels with this shady character so that good boys and girls in France and Belgium get presents from St. Nick. Bad boys and girls... They get lumps of coal or beatings from the whipping father. Wow. Germany has their own. Necht Ruprecht also travels with St. Nick. His punishment to bad kids is a little bit like coal. If kids don't pray properly, he beats them with a bag of ashes. Yeah. And worse of all, this one, this, I, I don't understand this one at all. Krampus, the Christmas demon of Austria... I mean, look at this thing, cloven feet and horns and a long tongue, chains dangling from his body. In their their picture in Austrian folklore, uh, St. Nick would come, Father Christmas would give good gifts to good kids and nice boys and girls, and bad boys and girls would get coal from this this creature, or uh, they would also get beaten or kidnapped or eaten. Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) Whew. Well, you know, the old stories are there to scare good behavior out of kids, right? The truth is, though, there's lots of us who've been kidnapped to some pretty hard places in life, even today. 
Maybe you're scared. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe, maybe you're trapped by your own naughty choices. We all have, I think, our own bag of coal that we carry around from time to time. And maybe this morning, if you're really honest, you admit you're kind of in a hard place. There's lots of coal going around these days. Mary and Joseph knew all about hard places. Their, their first Christmas had its own share of coal. We've been looking at it over the last few weeks in Matthew's gospel. And I think we've been reintroduced to a God of redemption, a God who surprises us that even in the midst of hard places, this God can turn Christmas coal into something sweet in the birth of His Son, Jesus. Maybe today you're in a hard place and you need a benevolent Father who can rescue you from a hard place. And we have one, you know. He's remarkably patient with people trapped on the naughty list. Uh, Check out the surprising story again in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, I want to read verses 18 through 25, and I believe it's on page 783 in those Bibles in front of you if you want to follow along there, or you can on the screen as well. Listen to the story again as Matthew tells it. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, or you could say he was a righteous man, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Just listen to the Christmas story. Uh, An unwed teenage girl pregnant, a man thinking about divorce. I mean, there's a lot of coal in this story. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. It's an expansive story. But I want to focus this morning on a little phrase in verse 24 that sort of caught my attention. It's the phrase, when Joseph woke up. Can you imagine? I mean, here he is, an arranged marriage in their world is hammered out, this bride price is secured, they get all their plans for the future nailed down, and then she turns up pregnant and everything's wrecked. Can you imagine? Divorce seems like the only way forward, and it's so hard. Separation and pain, it's impossible. And so in between all of the tossing and turning and the insomnia and the anxiety, Joseph slips into sleep and he has a dream. And in an amazing dream, God reveals to him through this angel an incredible amount of clarity in a very confusing place. He talks about, uh, he addresses his fear. He talks about this child and what even to name the child. All these things are coming together. But then he wakes up. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, And when I was reading this story again, God captured my attention with that line, and I I think it stood out to me because we can read it in a lot of different ways. Even the Greek term uh, for woke up, the word agero, has some different readings. Now, obviously, first, it's literal. He woke up from sleep. You know, he roused himself from his sleep, he wiped the sleep out of his eyes, he put his feet on the floor, and reality hit him in the face all over again. You know what that's like? 
you're struggling in a hard place in life, you get away for a little bit of sleep maybe, and then you wake up and it all comes rushing back to you all over again. This reading prompts us into, I think, realizing our own hard places in life. When Joseph woke up to this lump of coal, he could have done any number of things. You know, think about what he could have done, things we are tempted to do in our own hard places. He could have, for instance, rationalized away the dream, you know, oh, that was just the stress talking. Or I had pizza pretty late last night, maybe it was just the indigestion, I don't know. Dream doesn't change anything. Could have rationalized it. He could have woke up, he could have lied his way through this situation, tried to cheat his way around it. Maybe I'll just tell everybody, the baby's mine, you know, but there's a stigma attached to that. We'll have to move, but we can start over again. Or maybe I could just take Mary and hide her away. Maybe nobody will even know she was pregnant, you know. I don't know. What would you do? I'm not sure, but I do know we're often very good at seeking naughty ways to get out of hard places. Several years ago, some uh, researchers from Duke University, a man named Dan Airely and his uh, friends did a massive study to try to understand why people uh, lie and steal and cheat. And so what they decided was they'd go to some college campuses all around the country, all around the world, and they uh, created this environment. They would pay students $10 a piece to participate in this study, and then they would give them... uh, several hard math puzzles on a piece of paper, about 20 of them or so, and they said, listen, in five minutes' time, if you can answer these correctly, we'll pay you an extra dollar for every one you get right. And so they passed out these papers to all the students in the college classrooms, and for five minutes they'd fill them out, and then their instructions were, grade the paper yourselves, take the papers back to a shredder in the back of the room, destroy them, and then come tell the proctor how many you got right, and they'll pay you the extra dollar. What the students didn't know was that the shredder was rigged. It sounded like it was shredding and destroying the papers, but actually it was scanning the papers and sending them to researchers who then could tell how many of the students were lying. And what they found on average was that students reported solving six problems when in fact, on average, they only solved four. And they did this research project all over the world, 30,000 people from the U.S. and all over Europe and Turkey and China and Israel and all over, and they found largely the same thing. In fact, they found in all their study, 30,000 people, 12 big cheaters, 12, that's it. Those 12 took about $150 in the midst of that research project. But what they found were 18,000 small cheaters, who all told stole about $36,000, but it was just a dollar or two at a time. And it led them to to conclude, and I think we would probably conclude as well, that that this is kind of how human society works. Like, we, we like to throw large lumps of coal on big cheaters, you know, put them in the news, throw coal at them. But the, the problem with that is this, is that ordinary people like us, mostly honest. Well, sometimes we like to lie and cheat and rationalize and escape our hard places with just a little bit of dishonesty. And it can add up. The impact is huge. According to a 2011 study published in Psychology Today, most people in our society lie on average of 1.65 times per day. 
How many of you have already lied today? How many of you are lying right now that you haven't lied yet today? <laughs> we know how to escape hard places, right? We lie, we cheat, we steal, we rationalize. But not Joseph. When Joseph woke up, when he opened his eyes from this dream, he faced his hard place dead on. Now, I find it interesting. In the entire New Testament, Joseph doesn't speak. He has no lines, nothing recorded. He does a lot of significant things. In Matthew's gospel, where he appears more than any other story, he does incredible things. He overcomes his hesitation. He marries Mary. They escape in chapter 2 to Egypt to save the life of the child. They come back into Galilee after the threat is over. All of these things, but in every scene, Joseph simply acts without speaking. As Frederick Dale Bruner puts it, his speech is to do the will of God. And in a lot of ways, this Joseph, son of Jacob, reminds me of another Jacob, the one in the Old Testament, Genesis 28. They're very different personalities. That one spoke a lot. But in other ways, they're very similar. They're both running from a hard place or attempted to run from a hard place. One in divorce from Mary, the other because of a deception to his brother Esau. Both had dreams involving angels. Both heard God say the world would be blessed through them. Both had to make a very costly sacrifice to God in their lives. And maybe this morning, like them, you find yourself stuck in a hard place. Maybe you're worried you're going to get stiffed with some coal in your stocking this year. Maybe, even worse, you're afraid of a whipping from the whipping father or a kidnapping from Krampus. I don't know. Maybe this morning you found yourself locked into a hard place of addiction again. It's booze. It's food. It's internet pictures. It's Amazon shopping. Maybe you find yourself bound in a financial place. Maybe you find yourself squabbling a family. It's been decades in the making. It's gotten worse lately. What do you do when you find yourself in a hard place, when you recognize that? Do you lie? Do you cheat? Do you steal? Do you rationalize? Do you run? Maybe. Maybe this morning, like Joseph, we need to wake up with God's gospel in our ears. And we need to remember that we have a God who aids us, a God who doesn't abandon the naughty to their own chains, a God who will come and rescue to us, a God who says in Psalm 81, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, a God who rescues us, and then who says, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. That's our God. Maybe this week you got to wake up from fitful sleep and turn to this God. When Joseph woke up, it's such a small little detail, a massive story about God coming to earth and Jesus and the, the birth of the Savior and all these things, such a tiny little phrase that, you know, just means he woke up from his sleep. But then again, you know, sometimes we use that phrase, woke up, and we mean by that he came to his senses, you know, like he was roused from the fog of schemes and ideas in his head and came back to his senses. We might use it that way, for instance, in the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told in Luke 15, where, you know, the son took his father's inheritance and he went to the far country and he lived a wild life and he spent all his money. And then Luke says he came to his senses. Maybe that's the way we could read that phrase. When Joseph woke up, when he came to his senses and the whole divorce thing, he put on the back burner and decided to do something different. You know what that's like? 
maybe you've been in a hard place and you craft and you scheme and you, you rationalize, you try to figure a way out of it, and then, and then you wake up and you come to your senses. And my hope is that that reading kind of coaxes us into responding to our rescue. Joseph, you see, responded to God in this Christmas story in a very simple and yet profound way. Verse 24, did you hear it? When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded. Boy, that's simple. In keeping with his righteous character from verse 19, Joseph obeys the Lord's directives even when all human wisdom said to do the opposite. Run from this girl. Now, we might call him quiet Joseph. He doesn't talk in Matthew's gospel. But the truth is, his hallmark is obedience. It is prompt. It is simple. It is unspectacular. God sets the pace in Christmas. He first sets things in motion in Mary's life. And Joseph responds with immediate action. It kind of reminds us, you know, that God's grace doesn't cancel out our responsibility. It enables it. That it doesn't render us as believers comatose. It makes us obedient. And in this way, Joseph models righteousness to us. To be righteous, according to Joseph's story, is to obey God at His Word. To do what God says to do. Joseph, with his quiet obedience, models even how Jesus would later describe righteousness. You remember Sermon on the Mount? Jesus would say to to all in hearing, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. No, righteous people obey without needing an audience. And Joseph, the father, the, the adopted father of our Savior Jesus, lives out his obedience in a noiseless way, even in a hard place. He's righteous. And I'm looking right now at a room just full of righteous people. People like you who have experienced so much that God has acted in your lives and and He showered you with grace. And even though you've been in hard places and you know lumps of coal, you also know our rescuer. How many times have you been in a hard place yourself and yet you've given everyday hope money to somebody in need around you or you've, you've taken a meal to someone who's sick or just had surgery or you've dropped a note in the mail to encourage somebody who's going through a hard time or you've loved somebody or you've prayed for your neighbor or you've been generous to this church family noiselessly, quietly, righteously. I see Joseph in you. You know the hard place. You know lumps of coal, but you also know our rescuer. You know his good gifts. So you pray like David of old in Psalm 69. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. Just like Joseph. He obeyed simply. He did what the angel of the Lord commanded. Even in affliction, he obeyed. That's one way he responded in this rescue of God. The second way, very simple, Joseph embraced people when it was hard. Again, verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. She was, remember, branded in the community, right? She's bad news in that little town. She's a lawbreaker. Everybody can tell. They know what's going on. No one wants to associate with the stigmatized. Marrying her would be like in our day and age, I don't know, marrying... Harvey Weinstein, disgraced film producer or 
being really close friends with Lori Laughlin these days, the actress mom who allegedly paid for her daughter to get into college or something. Or being really, really close to uh, Matt Lauer, the former Today Show host, disgraced by sexual scandals, or being best friends with Logan Paul, the YouTube star who discovered the hanging body of a suicide victim and filmed it for all his fans. Nobody wants to be associated with the stigmatized. It's got coal all over it. But Joseph embraces her. He completes their betrothal. The marriage contract is drawn up. Money is exchanged between the families. A ceremony is had. The covenant is promised. And normally on the first night of a seven-day wedding feast, the wedding, the marriage would have been consummated, but Joseph did not abstaining until Jesus is born. He exercises incredible restraint, but more than that, he exercises remarkable compassion. He ties his life to this coal-stained girl. Man, I wonder what could your Christmas look like if you did something similar? What would it be like, church, if you and I kind of put aside the old Santa exclusive lists of naughty and nice? What if we embraced people in our arms and in our homes that would get our neighbors whispering behind our backs? What if Southside was known as a church that was a friend of sinners? What if we embraced people even when or especially when it is hard Joseph, it tells us in verse 19, was a righteous man, and yet he did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace. He did not want to shame her. Righteousness, Matthew's Christmas story says, is not wanting to shame people. Righteousness is being sensitive to people. He took Mary home as his wife. He did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. He not only embraced Mary, he embraced her child. And what everybody in their community assumed was an illegitimate child, he brought into his family line. He named that child. And I want you to hear it this morning. There's no Savior as a son of David unless obedient Joseph embraces people in a hard place. Surprise. I wonder what Christmas surprises might be in your future as God provides for you in hard places. Maybe for you, lumps of coal today turn into candy tomorrow. In fact, this isn't coal at all. It's chocolate. Here, Jeff, you can, you can test that out for us. Maybe excessive library fines will be paid by an anonymous benefactor. Card number 562699, your $37.98 has been paid, and you're free to borrow your books from now on. Please try to be a little more responsible in the future. Maybe if we obey God simply and quietly, if we embrace other people, even in sticky circumstances, maybe we will find God's brilliant rescue surprising us, even in a hard place. When Joseph woke up, that just means he got up from sleep, that's all. 
Or maybe we could be more fanciful and we could say, well, it's kind of when he came to his senses, right? And he realized that divorce wasn't the way to go. He should follow God in this way. Sure, sure, sure. There's another way that little word, egero, woke up, is used in the New Testament. It's used metaphorically for someone who has died and has come back to life. It's a resurrection word. In Matthew's gospel story, in the gospels, you hear this beautiful story about this Jesus born on Christmas Day who would be killed on a cross and three days later he woke up. He rose from the dead and he promises to you that he will help rescue you. He will conquer for you the greatest hard place you will ever experience, death itself, if you will but come and follow him. And so today I pray for you, this is the day that you and I, we wake up. Maybe this day is the day for you that after the service you come to us in the family room and you say, I want to be a life of faith. I want to be baptized in Jesus. I want to follow this Christ. I want to know God's rescue. Today, let today be the day. Because after all, it's time to see this Savior for who He is. It's time to respond to Him in obedience and embrace. It's time to love God and love people. It's time to be righteous. Because after all, it's Christmas time. And what could be more Christmas than receiving a surprisingly good gift when what you really deserve is a lump of coal? Would you pray with me? Let me pray with the words of Zechariah in Luke 1. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come to His people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.